0: So I remember when, you know, really building companies as an entrepreneur, how really frustrating is when you have people missing out deadlines, there's people that are not copied on emails, and then, you know, like everyone ends up failing in the pursuit of of, of accomplishing things. So email is really great when you're doing one-to-one conversations, but when you have a ton of people there copied. You know, there's going to be people that are going to be missing out on stuff. So for project management, I actually found Basecamp and I found it to be a really fantastic solution. You know, basically what they are is a collaboration type of uh, tool that allows people to really engage with their offer message boards, the to-dos, the schedules, their document sharing, the group chats, and other tools that are going to help you in taking the game of your company to the next level. So go to Basecamp.com forward slash DealMakers and sign up today for their 30-day free trial. And there is no credit card that is required, and you can cancel at any time. All righty. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Maker show. So today we're going to have the battle of accents here with my Spanglish and then also with the Scottish accent. But I'm sure that you're all going to be very much inspired with the guests that we have I mean, incredible. We're going to be talking from almost making it to pro and having injuries to really going into you know, the, the professional career and then becoming an entrepreneur and, and building a rocket ship. So I think that without further ado, let's welcome our guest today, Chris Hurd. Welcome to the DealMaker Show. Great to be here, Alejandro. Appreciate you having me. So let's do a little of a walk through memory lane. So you were born in Scotland. So walk us through life growing up there.
1: Life's good, apart from I think right now where there's a a heat wave here. Scotland's a pretty pl- great place to be, A lot outdoors, not that many people, weather's not too hot, and yeah, a lot to do. So fairly great place to grow up.
0: And in your case, I mean, it was uh, quite inspiring. I mean, you you grew up, you know, seeing your father, you know, really um, controlling his own destiny. You know, he had his own business, uh, obviously you know, there was the ups and the downs too, but but what did you learn from being exposed to to his journey as well?
1: Yeah, I think for, for me, it was, we were always there, right? He would take us to the, the restaurant on a Saturday morning before we played football and we would see everything. We would see him taking the, doing the books. We would see him working and interacting with his staff and his colleagues. And I think for me, just being exposed to that at such an early age, it's just always in the back of your mind that that's possible. And I think for other people who may not be around that growing up, it's always this really scary thing to start a business. Whereas for me, it always felt like that was inevitably a path I was going to go down based on what I'd seen from my dad.
0: I mean, even the the downs. I mean, you were even exposed to the disagreements too, between co-founders. So, I mean, what what did you experience there?
1: Yeah, I think it's it's one of those things which, in retrospect, I think means... Um, Colored my, my uh childhood a lot more than you realize at the time. You see the impact that has on your family as as those things happen. You see how it changes how your parents work and the dynamic there, and really forced us to endure some fairly hard times. I think for me now, looking back at the struggle, the stress, and the strife that came off the back of that, they're really the things that become formative in who you become and the views of the world that you have. So as hard as i think it was at the time going through it now looking back i appreciate how much um how impactful that was and how important it was to making me uh, the way i am today
0: now for you i mean you've been quite competitive growing up i mean you played uh, football but then also you got injured so i guess you know there's two things here i mean what did you learn from the game of football you know that you could apply to 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 anything else right and then also i guess leadership and in other areas around it. And then also you were injured. So, you know, I guess dealing with uncertainty and, and reinventing yourself.
1: Yeah, I think taking the first part, it's, it's always such an important thing for me to understand the way that I want to build teams and looking back at the best teams that I was a part of from a sporting perspective. And yeah, understanding that the best player isn't always the one that's going to score the goals Understanding that different people have different responsibilities that they're going to be held accountable for and understanding how you need to rely on other people to perform. I think that is all um, incredibly pertinent to running a business. And I think more and more thinking about how the team changes from year to year, right? As you maybe improve, as you grow older, the needs of the team changes, you swap in players, you swap out other players, I think there are direct parallels to how you run and operate a business on the other side, um, facing some of that stuff, bad injuries, coming back from that, still trying to reach the the top level of sport. Um, you realize that some things are often out with your control. Um, you can't predict injuries. You can predict how you react to them. So I think for me, it was looking at all those hard times and, um, trying to understand how you can learn from those moments where the path is, is hard. Um, that's, I think, something that you certainly learn from in a business where not everything is
0: easy. There's a lot of obviously hard times um, as, as you grow. So when you got injured, I mean, you were forced into academics and they uh, landed you into the studies of architecture. So out of all things, why architecture?
1: I mean, right now, I, I forget the answer. I, I think it was just something I enjoyed. I, I enjoyed the thought of creating something and that something that never existed before being able to make that real. And I think in some ways, there's a lot of parallels to creating a business as well. Um, for me, I looked to architecture as how can we take things from the past, reinvent them for the for the modern world by integrating the modern technology of the day. And that was kind of how I've always viewed business. You look at, Napster and Spotify and the, ta- the, the, the parallels there. You look at Uber reinventing the taxi industry. For me, there's a lot of creativity in building businesses. So I think it was just maybe trying to avoid doing the same thing my dad did, but then inevitably following in the same thing almost by mistake. So why
0: were you trying to avoid it?
1: I don't know. I think it's one of those things where you grow up, you're like, Well, I don't want to do all the same things that people that were older than me did. I think there's always this rebellious phase that you go through as a teenager where maybe you thought you were gonna do that and then, well, everyone else thinks I'm gonna do that, so I'm gonna go and do something else. But yeah, eventually it caught up with me.
0: So even, you know, you were talking about it that you were destined, you know, even if you didn't realize at that point to create. And that's why you like the architecture uh, type of field. But you land in the oil and gas industry, which is a little bit different than uh, than everything. I mean, obviously, it served you well, uh, and we'll talk about it. You know, with with starting your next your, your, the company that you have going on now. But but how did this happen?
1: Yeah, I think it was it's a combination of things. I, I was still playing football. I I played semi pro soccer for probably twelve of the last thirteen years. I retired last Christmas, and I want to stay in the place where we were to keep doing that because you probably still want to maybe become a professional, even though you know that that boat's kind of sailed. And when you're in the north of Scotland, you're in Aberdeen, Aberdeen's the oil and gas capital of Europe, it's almost inevitable that you fall into that. It's maybe not the most intellectually stimulating job, but it's high paying and it's relatively easy. Um, And I think the combination of those things meant that I could do a whole week's work in a very short period of time and then spend the rest of the time trying to satisfy that intellectual demand of of creation that we already spoke about. And that then became the path or enabler to me doing the things that followed.
0: And obviously you realized that oil and gas was not for you, but then you got into this uh, path of discovery, discovering yourself, discovering, you know, everything around you and what's possible. And everything started with a block. So what happened next?
1: Yeah, I think the way I, the way I think is... I put my thoughts on paper and I, I sharpen them over time. I think a lot of people feel p- paralyzed by putting thoughts and words and feelings out in the world. And I I guess I'm kind of broken in a way where I don't have that thing that holds me back from doing that. And I would often publish things, I would edit them along the way. And I think my my thoughts would become clearer. And as I was going through that, I was spending a lot of time thinking about what the world might look like. It was probably late 2017, pre-IPO craze in the crypto world, and starting to think about the implications of that, right? What does crypto enable? What does Web3 enable? What does the sharing economy enable? And by writing about that, I just got exposed to a whole other world. I started to connect with tech companies in the UK. I started to connect and learn about venture capitalists. Um, And eventually you reach that point where it's like, okay, well, time to quit the oil and gas industry, time to stop harming the planet. And time to do something which lets you satisfy the demands of of that intellectual pursuit, which obviously I wasn't getting in the the other career.
0: So how do you fall into all these conversations with VCs and other entrepreneurs?
1: Yeah, process of just writing. A lot of people began to reach out to me. That blog grew to something like 50,000 followers and hundreds of thousands, if not millions of reads uh, a week. And I think in those conversations, I then began to question, like, well, what do I want to do? Do I want to go to the States and study an MBA? Should I go and work for one of these entrepreneurs and learn a lot from them if I do want to build a business down the way? Should I lean into the venture capitalist side of things? I think that's always been something that's been really interesting to me as well. Um, And rather than following that path with one of those high-paying opportunities, um, I decided to have no salary and found a tech startup, which my parents weren't particularly thrilled about.
0: So entering the venture world. So tell us about you know, those early days and, and how things you know, came together.
1: Yeah, so we, we kind of grew from this idea about how can we enable people to pay less for the things they use? Um, and that business was a fi- financial technology company that plugged into your bank account, analyzed your recurring expenses, and could convert you to cheaper deals automatically. And what we found out along the way was people don't really care about saving four or 500 pounds a year, which was really surprising to us. Um, But the other thing that we were exposed to because of where we lived, like if you're in the north of Scotland, it's really hard to access the most talented people in the world. So the other thing we became exposed to at the same time was, well, we're going to have to be a remote company. And we just started going through all these challenges and obstacles where eventually we figure out we need to solve that problem for ourselves. And eventually down the road we pivot to build first base, which we're obviously focused
0: on um today. So then in your guys' case, I mean, landing on first base, you know, was was kind of like a sequence of events. You know, at one point, you know, you realized that, you know, in your case, I mean, it became more and more remote and you experienced some of those challenges, but certain conversations with your circle of friends and, and colleagues really made it more clear and crystallized more your thoughts. So can you walk us through that motion of events? Because obviously, you know, there was quite a pivot here.
1: Yeah. Well, we we got to the point that most startups do, which is we raised an initial seed round of capital. Sorry, it was an angel, an angel round of capital. We were burning through that. We maybe had two or three months of cash left in the bank. And this is something a lot of startups end up at, where it's like, okay, should we keep building? Do we have enough time to either raise more money to generate money from people paying us, should we give up and find real jobs or should we try something else? And that should we try something else question was the light bulb, which was like, okay, well, we have a bunch of friends building remote businesses. Why don't we go and ask them if they're struggling with the same thing? So we do that. They parrot back to us everything we already know. This is super hard. It's expensive to get our workers set up. Equipment doesn't turn up on time people leave, it's impossible to collect it, things break, it's hard to fix it. And as we continue to ask our friends about that and hear the same thing, it was one of those situations where you're like, okay, this just sounds like a startup problem. And there's a million things that startups struggle with. They don't have enough money, they don't have enough people, they don't have enough resources. So in our mind, it kind of just felt like, oh, this is one of those startup problems, um, fortunately for us, we were also talking to one of the biggest banks in the world. So we go to them, we ask them the same questions. 24 hours later, we're talking to the chief people officer of one of the biggest banks in Europe. And verbatim, she tells us the same thing. She says, this is broken for us, it's expensive, it's time consuming, so on and so forth. And that was kind of the moment that was confirmationary for us, where it was like, okay, that's interesting. Not just a small company problem, big company problem not just a nice to have there's an actual pain here why they need a better solution and that was the moment we pivoted which was September
0: 2019 Hey guys so pardon the interruption here I got to tell you that you know for those of you that are either looking to raise money or you're looking to get your company acquired you don't have to be alone you know there's a lot of psychology that needs to be blended with strategy with methodology with process And it's very hard and already doing your business alone is super, super difficult. So I remember, you know, back when I was an entrepreneur, I kept really experiencing the challenge of either knowing or finding the right type of access to the right type of investors or really understanding what was the right type of guidance, you know, that would carry me through the process, whether it was with seeking money or with going through the acquisition. So that gap that I found being an entrepreneur is ultimately what pushed me later on when I met my co-founder at Pantera, Mike Sieberson, to really put together an advisory firm where we are guiding entrepreneurs and founding teams through the capital raising efforts, whether you are at a seed stage or at a Series A stage, or if you are going through the process of an acquisition and you are in small to mid cap type of cycle. So again, you know, we would help you from guiding you and and supporting you from A to C all the way to the end as an extension of your team. And there's no reason for you to do this alone. So with that being said, if you would like to find out more, feel free to send me an email at alejandro at panteraadvisors.com and we would love to take a look at helping you out. You know, one of the things that I've seen of some of the most successful entrepreneurs is that they are able to embrace the art of listening, you know, listening for really identifying the concerns that are in between them and, and everything else, whether it's customers, investors, or employees. So it sounds like you guys really honing in on, on the listening there. So, I mean, what was what, your big lesson there from, from those interactions and from the insights that you were able to gather?
1: So I think there was, there was a combination of things. We started off with feeling the pain ourselves, which obviously orientates you towards a problem that you want to solve initially. And I think that's always a great starting point, right? You, your friends, your family, people you know, if they're facing problems, you can assume fairly strongly that other people are facing the same thing. So that was number one, find a problem which we knew other people were struggling with. And now that we find the problem, we shouldn't just solve it from our own perspectives, right? We want to go and have a conversation with other people and understand the um, issues at the periphery. So not just the obvious parts, but what are the actual pain points that we need to address? Like there's the obvious one, it's hard to get remote workers set up. But well, what's the non-obvious pieces to that? And as you start to go deeper there, what you really want to listen for are not someone telling you what the solutions are, that never works out, You need to just listen for the pain and all the issues and you need to go deeper on them. Okay, well, like you said, this is a problem. Can you tell me more about that? Can you tell me like what that manifests itself as? Who faces that problem, right? Is it just you? Is it your team? Is it the entire company? And as we started to go deeper and deeper, we began to build that picture up of, I guess it's like a richer tapestry of colors where you take different pieces of information from different people, you synthesize that all together and what ultimately comes out of that is something you create, which is a solution to all those things. And that's a very typically long period of time because you need to refine that over time as well, right? You listen, you ask more people, you go back to them, you test it again, you go to other people, and then eventually you end up with a product that you know quite
0: a lot of people need. So first base, for the people that are listening, what ended up being the business model? How do you guys make money? So companies pay us for three things. Number
1: one, they pay us when they take an action on the platform. They hire someone, they let someone go. So think about that almost as a delivery fee. There's a pure SaaS component to it. So it's a two-sided platform. There's the company side. If you're an HR manager, you're an IT manager, you're going to use that to manage all your assets from one place to know where those pieces of equipment are to create catalogs of equipment that your workers can select from, to hold inventory so you never go through the situations which companies are just now related to supply chain. On the worker side of the platform, we serve them up a beautiful e-commerce type solution where you go through and you choose the machine you want to work on, the size of desk that suits the space you have at home, the color of chair, the type of headset that you want, really empowering you to personalize the equipment that lets you do your best work. And then the final thing people pay us for is the physical equipment. Um, rather than purchasing it, we serve them up in a hardware as a service model where they effectively lease that over a two or three year period. Instead of paying $3,000 up front, they pay us somewhere between $70 and $130 a month.
0: And in terms of capitalizing the business, I mean, obviously you guys have raised money from from some of the biggest names in the world when it comes to to VC. So I guess... How much capital have you guys raised today? We have raised, I think, two hundred k short of
1: sixty-five million.
0: Okay. Now, in this case, you being from Scotland, you know, you're not uh, native from from the US. So, what was that process to getting, you know, some of those big names?
1: Yeah, I think initially hard, right? I, that networking piece is difficult. If you if you don't have people on the inside who can make warm introductions, you can feel like you're banging your head against the wall for a long time and. I certainly was. I think there were a few key strengths that I had that enabled me to break through. So number one, I'm a great writer. And more specifically, I'm a great email writer. So when I send a cold email, I know probably at least 50 or 60 times in a 100, they're going to read it. And probably more often than not, they're going to reply to me. So I always had that as a superpower. The second one is I'm pretty good at social media. And I think being able to create noise on places like Twitter or LinkedIn, or being able to write compelling copy in blogs, naturally makes people gravitate towards us. And basically, I think there was a confluence of things. So I was good at emails, good at writing. A few of the things I blew, I, I wrote on Twitter, blew up. That put me in front of some of the leading investors in the valley. Um, and I think that was really the thing that enabled me to break through from a non-obvious part of the world with out having the connections that most people usually do.
0: So I'm sure that there's a lot of uh, entrepreneurs that are listening to us. You know, I'm sure many, many of them, you know, close to you, you know, in in Europe that are wondering, hey, you know, how how can I open one of those doors for for those, you know, with those VCs and, and how incredible that Chris was able to do that with cold emails. So for the people that are listening, what would you say are the must-have three components of a cold email? So, for me, it has to be short
1: has to have a very clear ask, and it has to have the context as to why you're the person to do this
0: now, How was the because you you guys have done a few rounds? How has it been the progression shifting from one financing cycle to the next with first base so we've been relatively
1: fortunate in a lot of ways we've we've never really went out to raise money. it's almost always found us and I think what I'm saying there is like we never raised the round, but you're always having conversations the The times I've seen friends and acquaintances be unsuccessful is when their backs are up against the wall, they need to run a process, and everyone knows this right like everyone knows that they're running the process, so they either fail or succeed um for me we we raised our initial seed round in august twenty twenty a couple of million dollars. And then almost immediately, we began building relationships with investors at the next stage where we may want to raise money from. And that's a really important process for me. I think in an environment where, which we've seen over the last couple of years, where rounds are happening increasingly faster, you almost have these like shotgun marriages overnight. I really wanted to avoid that. I wanted to build relationships. And like, obviously go back to the situation my dad went through, where he falls out with his co-founder, like that leaves an imprint on you. So it was really important for me to build relationships with people over four or five months, get to know them, understand the value that they can bring, um, and really answer the question of like, do I want to work with this person for the next decade? Because in my mind, getting to the public markets isn't a finish line, right? That's just another starting line for us to go and crush it from. And then basically continue that. So we did the A Five months after we did the, the seed round, same thing again with, with the Series B. We got to know the folks that we might want to take cash from at that point, began building the relationship. And again, you ask that same question, right? Do I want to work with this person for a decade? And I think that question served us incredibly well for making the right decisions in terms of who we want to partner with um, in building the business.
0: I think that's amazing that uh, you were already thinking about building the relationship early. So that when you get to that point, you can just trigger the relationship. But how do you go about building that relationship without having the other investor feeling like uh, you're wasting their time because you just raced around?
1: I'm just being super upfront, right? We're we're not gonna raise money anytime in the next six months. Like we're we're interested in building a relationship, like we'd really like to get to know you, but we're not gonna do this until we do X, Y, or Z. And X Y or Z might be a revenue milestone it might be building a leadership team it might be daily active users you you basically define that path but i think by going into that it actually defeats most of the bad things that happen in those relationships i think it lets me build a human relationship with the person at the other side of the call without any expectations around hey like i need money from you or the business is going to die and i think that is actually like a very different relationship that gets built where it's like okay we're raising 50 million dollars we're going to do it 2 weeks from now okay well now we don't have time to do that and like now we're never going to answer the question of should we work together for the next decade because we haven't taken the time to get to to know each other
0: that's amazing uh in in this case you know for you um you know how how big is first base today i mean for the people that are listening to really get an understanding on the Scope and size, I mean, anything that you can share in terms of number of employees or anything else that you feel comfortable with?
1: Yeah, we we went through 100 employees, I think, three weeks ago, four weeks ago, and we serve about 15,000 remote workers globally.
0: That's fantastic. And if you had the opportunity, let's say, to go to sleep tonight, and you wake up in a world, Chris, where the vision of First Base is fully realized, what does that world look like?
1: Yeah. So I think today, First Base is very clear, right? We put tools and equipment in people's homes for company and we make it incredibly easy for them to do that. When you zoom out and you expand the aperture, what we're actually building is an employee relationship management platform for modern work. The reason we start with physical assets is because we think it's the hardest problem that companies face. But from there, we get to get exposed to all the other challenges that they face from a remote work perspective. So We'll build out all the core infrastructure companies need to set up, support, and scale their teams globally.
0: So one thing that is very interesting here is that you guys really got started with with the company in 2019. So, I mean, one of the things that is true is that it's, it's also all about timing and being at the right time in history. You know, uh, one year later, the whole COVID thing would accelerate by a mile, the whole way people think and, and engage with remote uh, work so how do you think that that has accelerated your guys's momentum and then also realizing that vision
1: yeah i think as a as a general trend remote work and flexible work and hybrid work whichever adjective you want to use to describe it accelerated by 10 or 15 years overnight in march 2020 and i think while we have been the beneficiaries of it we were seeing a huge amount of interest before. And I think that's to say like, if you really focus on the things that are happening like underneath the hood, you often see trends that other people miss. And you look at the rate of growth of remote work from 2008 to 2018, it grew like 400% decade over decade. There were 3.2 million remote workers in the US alone. So like the people who were plugged in knew it was happening. And if you looked at the types of businesses it was happening at, you saw that it was the most desirable businesses to work at. So the assumption that you make then is like, well, if the best businesses in the world and the best employees want remote work over a long enough time horizon, this is going to be the way the world trends, right? More and more people are going to work remote. More and more of the best companies are going to be more remote. They're going to force other companies to do the same. Otherwise, they're going to lose their most talented people to the best companies to work for. So I think that was like obvious to us, and at the same time, we were experiencing all the benefits of it. Right, I working in an office, I miss my kids walking, laughing, and talking for the first time. Over that period where we're building the fintech business, we're just getting exposed to all these other uh, intangible benefits of of working remotely, being being able to live where you want, being able to travel more, being able to or not having to commute for two hours a day. And I think what that meant is because we were focusing on the right thing. When the inevitable accelerant happens, you're in the right place to take advantage. And don't get me wrong, there's a lot of luck in that as well,
0: right? So if I was to put you into a time machine and I was able to bring you back in time, you know, perhaps to that time where you were writing a blog, where you were engaging with people in the VC world and you know, starting to really think as to what would be if you had your own venture and you had the opportunity of sitting down that younger self and giving that younger self one piece of advice before launching a company. What would that be and why, given what you know now, Chris?
1: Yeah, I I, I think hiring the right people is still the thing that is most underrated. If you don't have great people on the team with you, like, good luck. <laughs> like, the right people makes everything exponentially easier. And the wrong people makes everything exponentially harder. I think the the hard thing for first time entrepreneurs is just in realizing how true that is, and understanding how quickly you should be extracting yourself from all the things you no longer have to do. And my job is as, as to, in leading the business, how do I ask the right questions? And how do I orientate the right people towards the right problems? And Every time that you start to ask those questions, it always comes back to like, do we have the right people in the right places? And if you don't, they're distracting to the business. If you do, get out their way because you know they're going to execute.
0: I love that. And for the people that are listening that uh, that want to reach out and say, hi, Chris, what is the best way for them to do so?
1: At Chris underscore heard on Twitter.
0: Amazing. Well, Chris, thank you so much for being on the Maker show today. It has been an honor to have you with us.